First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis, now has its own podcast where you can listen to all episodes in one place. Subscribe to First Look in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at The Washington Post. President Biden continues to walk the tightrope that is handling the Israel-Hamas war as Secretary of State Antony Blinken lands back in Israel this morning. Joining me now, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Tolu Olorunipa, White House Bureau Chief for The Washington Post. Tolu, as always, welcome back to First Look. It's great to be with you again, Jonathan. So here's what Secretary of State Blinken listed as his top priority when he left Washington yesterday. Listen. First, uh, to talk to uh, the Israeli government about the ongoing campaign against the Hamas terrorist organization. As uh, we've said from the start, Israel has not only the right but the obligation to defend itself and also to take steps to try to make sure that this never happens again. We've also said very clearly and repeatedly that how Israel does this matters. And so since the Hamas attacks on Israel on the 7th of October, the president and his administration, as we just heard from the secretary of state, has the right to defend itself. But in the last couple of days, the president and others started talking about a humanitarian pause in the war. In fact, that's one of the stated goals of Secretary Blinken's trip to uh, trip to Israel. What's behind the urgency of this call for a pause? There are a couple of different things. First, the humanitarian situation on the ground has become dire. You have hospitals running out of fuel with patients dying because of the lack of ability to have electricity in hospitals. You have a death toll that, according to the Palestinian Palestinian Health Ministry has surpassed 9,000, and even as those numbers are disputed, even the White House has confirmed that thousands of people, including uh, thousands of children, have been killed in this in this crisis. You have a lot of civilians being caught up in this. You have Americans on the ground who have had trouble getting out of Gaza. You have hostages. And so for all of those reasons, and for the fact that a number of international actors, including um, some governments in the Middle East, have started to sever ties with uh, Israel and called for a ceasefire. That's part of the reason why President Biden and the White House are calling for not a ceasefire, but humanitarian pauses to get aid into Gaza, as well as to get people out of Gaza who do not want to be in harm's way as this uh, incursion increases in intensity. Is is it fair to say that this is a shift in positions or a shift in rhetorical emphasis? For sure. If you look at how President Biden and his top aides were talking in the immediate aftermath of the October 7th attacks by Hamas, they said they were unwavering in their support for Israel. They said that Israel had the right to be overwhelming in its response. But now, as we've seen these images of children and civilians being killed by the scores, refugee camps and hospitals being caught up in this, uh, there's a a different tone. Uh, And part of that tone is a result of the pressure that the president is feeling from domestic audiences, including Muslim Americans, Arab Americans, and uh, and various activists who uh, align themselves with the Palestinian Palestinian cause and who believe that what's happening in Gaza is a tragedy. And in addition to being a humanitarian crisis, is something that the U.S. should be standing against. And so we have seen that shift in rhetoric from the president. It remains to be seen whether or not that will increase and whether or not that call for a humanitarian pause will lead to an ultimate call for a ceasefire by the president. We haven't seen that yet, but 
the indications are that the White House is feeling pressure both domestically and internationally to put an end to the bloodshed that we've seen so far. Let me get your reaction or, or see if you have any reporting on this. Uh, apparently, one of the leaders of Hamas is due at the time we're talking, he's due to give a speech um, about about the war. Uh, is the White House monitoring that? And do they have through any reporting you may you may have done any expectation that does the administration have any insight into into what that leader might say? The White House is, is monitoring uh, the, these discussions and, and the, this uh, upcoming statement very closely. They have said that they don't know exactly what the leaders of Hamas or even the leaders of Hezbollah, who also plan to speak today, will be will be saying as they make remarks to the public. But they are watching very closely, in part because they do want to find a way to end this bloodshed, and also because they don't want this to spread. There is the high risk that other countries could be involved, that this could become a two-front war with Hezbollah leading uh, a fight against Israel from the northern front. And so there is a sense that this is a very uh, turbulent moment in this war, and the White House wants to ratchet down the, the temperature. They want this to uh, be sort of a, a quick ending thing rather than a multi-front war that continues to go on and on. They have to think about not only the international relations that are at play and very thorny domestic, very thorny domestic policies and politics in these various countries that surround Israel, but also the domestic po politics here in the United States where the president is feeling a lot of pressure. And so they are watching very closely. They don't have as much insight into what is being uh, considered by the leaders of Hamas, what is being considered by uh, the leaders of Hezbollah. They've had to rely on Qatar to uh, help with the hostage releases and help uh, with the negotiations with Hamas. And so there is a limit to the amount of intelligence and, and information that the U.S. has about Hamas. And that can be seen in the fact that there was no awareness that this October 7th attack was going to happen, either by the U.S. intelligence agencies or the highly thought of U.S. Uh, highly thought of intelligence uh, forces in Israel. And so that lack of awareness is, is part of the reason why uh, the U.S. government has struggled to figure out the best way to bring this uh, war to an end, the best way to prosecute this war in a way that does not have as many civilian uh, casualties. Even as they're talking to their Israeli counterparts, they are worried about the lack of information and the lack of intelligence about what Hamas is doing. Let's talk about the domestic uh, angle to all of this. Uh, now that the House has passed its uh, Israel aid bill that offsets the costs by cutting funding for the IRS, is the administration's hope that the Senate passes a combined Israel-Ukraine aid package and forces the House to adopt it? Yeah, that's exactly what the administration is hoping for. They see the Republicans in the Senate as being more reasonable on foreign policy, more reasonable on the issue uh, of how to prosecute some of these wars in 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 Russia, in, in Ukraine, Russia's aggression against Ukraine, as well as the situation in Israel. Uh, then the Republicans in the House, they have already said that they would veto any bill that is passed by the House that would, you know, bifurcate these two funding streams separating Israel, trying to you know offset some of the spending for the, the, the support for Israel. And so 
they are hoping that the Senate will be able to put pressure on the House. The fact that you have Leader McConnell in the Senate very much in favor of not only passing the support for Israel, but also passing support for Ukraine. Um, They're hoping that Republicans in the Senate will be able to speak to their colleagues in the House and maybe get uh, some kind of bipartisan support for uh, the president's goal of funding not only the war in, in Israel and supporting Israel and also providing humanitarian aids for, aid for the people of Gaza, but also um, something a little more controversial among Republicans, continuing to support the war in Ukraine, continuing to provide billions and billions of dollars for the fighters in Ukraine, even as that war has kind of come into a bit of a stalemate. Uh, so they are hoping that the Senate will be able to you know, put pressure on the House, but it remains to be seen, especially as we're getting close to a government funding shut, shutdown deadline, uh, whether or not there's enough time to get this done before uh, they have to fund the government as well as fund some of these wars that are uh, in need of U.S. support. Ah, time to lose time. Uh, one more question for you before we run out of it. The October jobs report uh, was released. 150,000 jobs were created. The unemployment rate ticked up from 3.8% to 3.9%. How will the administration view these numbers? Well, they're still happy that unemployment is under 4%, but this is a clear slowing of the economy, a clear slowing of the kind of job growth we've seen in the past. And so they have to brace themselves for the fact that with interest rates as high as they are, the economy is poised to slow down between now and the election. And so they're gonna have to talk about the growth rate in a way that continues to inspire confidence, even as we see the growth in jobs and the growth in the economy slow over the next several months. All right. Um, White House doesn't get credit for, for the economy when it's good, but I'm sure they're aware they will definitely get the blame <laughs> if the economy Turn south. White House Bureau Chief for the Washington Post, Tulu Olurunipa, as always, thanks for coming back to First Look. Have a good weekend. You too. Thank you. We're going to keep the conversation going with our opinions roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Deputy Opinion Editor David Von Draley and Washington Post columnist Megan McArdle. David, Megan, welcome back to First Look. Great to be here. Thanks for um, me. Sure, Megan, I want to continue the, um, the conversation about the Israel-Hamas war. How do you think President Biden has done this past month balancing support for Israel while now also now calling for a humanitarian pause in the war? How likely are we to see that humanitarian pause? I think that's hard to know. I think, I mean, one thing that has become clear, right, is the Israelis are not that amenable to pressure um, on how they're going to conduct this war. Opinions of non-Israelis are just not that interesting to them. Um, that said, you know, a humanitarian pause for a few hours or days in order to get relief to civilians who are suffering. That's something that they might be willing to grant, but I I think that that is going to be a mystery right up to the point where they decide yes or no um, to those of us who are outside those negotiations, I, because I think it is it's hard for people to to understand the depth of depths of the psychological shock that Israel has undergone. This is like multiple 9/11s for them, and um, and they are simply not focused on anything except, first of all, taking Hamas out. And I think that this is a change for them. They're less focused on getting the hostages back than they are at making sure that there will never be another uh, hostage taking by Hamas. Um, and secondarily, on getting the hostages back and any sort of 
uh, other foreign policy considerations way down the list. Mm -hmm. um, I just want to correct something. I, I misspoke uh, in a question to Tolu. It is not the Hamas leader who is, who is to give remarks today. It's the leader of Hezbollah who is supposed to speak today for the first time since the war broke out. David, I would love to get, to get your view uh, about the potential for humanitarian pause, but also what you expect we're going to hear from the leader of Hezbollah. Uh, I'm I'm sitting on the edge of my seat, Jonathan, for the remarks from the leader of Hezbollah, um, because we don't know uh, in what direction he's going to go. There were reports yesterday that the Wag Wagner Group, uh, which are the you know the nihilistic uh, merchants of death out of Russia, uh, are going to uh, uh, provide. Uh, anti-aircraft uh, weaponry systems uh, to Hezbollah. Uh, I hope it doesn't mean that Hezbollah is planning to escalate and uh, come into this war uh, uh, based on that, uh, but I, we're very much afraid that uh, what we're going to hear uh, today is going to signal an escalation. Uh, this is one of the most dangerous periods uh, the world has been in um, in many years. Uh, and um, people uh, who have been, uh, you know, in, in conflict in that region for decades really need to move very, very carefully now because uh, things could go very wrong very quickly. Mm -hmm. Let me. So how do you think the the president and the Biden administration have been have handled um, things since yeah. October seventh? Yeah, it, it's it's a problem from hell, Jonathan, uh, because it, it it is so dangerous. But I think uh, I think the president uh, took exactly the right tone at the beginning. Uh, Israel is a great ally to the United States, but not only that, it's a uh, it's a functioning democracy. It's a successful economy uh, in a region that uh, doesn't have a lot of those to show. Uh, contrary to what we're seeing on TV, Israel has been seeking uh, a peaceful coexistence with neighbors for uh, decades. Uh, it's Hamas and the, the Palestinian quote-unquote uh, uh, movement that has been unwilling to coexist with Israel. Their philosophy is uh, to, uh, to, to wipe out Israel, uh, which is not a realistic goal. And so uh, we, I, I realize there's tremendous sympathy for the people who are suffering in Gaza, but the reason they're suffering is because Hamas and the other Palestinian leaders have been unwilling for many, many years to arrive at a peaceful coexistence with the uh, fact of the Israeli state. You know, has either of you heard any articulation um, from anyone in the Israeli government about what next in Gaza after the war? I mean, is it occupation? Is there, do we have any clue, Megan? I think we don't know. I don't think they know. 
Right. I mean, I, I think that, that, again, we're not looking at something where there was a, a lengthy plan for this. They suffered a horrific terrorist attack on civilians. They have, in the last three weeks, mobilized basically the entire country for a major war. Um, and they're going in to get Hamas. I don't think that they have a plan for what comes after. And I think in part that's going to be determined by how easy is it to get Hamas out without inflicting horrific casualties. I mean, they have, to be clear, already inflicted horrific casualties, but we don't, you know, that it, it could it could be better or worse going forward. And we don't know what that's going to look like. We don't know how damaged Gaza is going to be by this Um and I think that, that we also don't know what the broader geopolitical situation is going to be. And there are you know, funders of Hamas, um, but also other forces like Hezbollah, like Iran, um, and how they respond to this, whether the war broadens, all of that is going to end up uh, helping to determine what happens next in Gaza. But I think this is, I mean, I think you were asking absolutely the right question. This is an incredibly complicated um, I, I think we saw this in Iraq. We a lot of Americans kind of assumed, well, Saddam Hussein is so bad, we it, it can't be worse, right? No, it could be worse, and and that is the thing that you always have to keep in mind with something like this. I understand why Israel feels that they cannot allow Hamas to to basically continue to exist as a functioning organization, um, but there is a real question of after this has devastated Palestinian civilians. Have you created an even worse force than Hamas to succeed it? Um, David, I'm gonna ask you the, <clears throat> excuse me, the same question I asked Tolu, and that is now that the House has passed its Israel aid bill uh, that offsets costs by cutting the IRS, um, is the administration's hope that the Senate passes a combined Iran I'm sorry, Israel-Ukraine aid bill and forces, uh, passes it out of the Senate and then forces the House to deal with it. Yes, that's exactly what they're hoping will happen. Uh, and then it'll be two against one. Uh, it'll be bipartisan uh, because Mitch McConnell will be behind it along with the president. And uh, at that point, we'll see if, uh, you know, the government, we, this, this Republican majority in the House, this very thin majority, and they're just really having a very difficult time finding their way toward uh, leadership in a moment when the world needs some. Uh, and so the question will go back to them about how long they want to uh, posture uh, for their uh, base constituents, and are they ready to get some work done this uh this it's 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 frustrating because uh the amount of money they're they're fighting over in the context of the federal budget and and the immense uh deficit we're running right now is uh, nickels and dimes uh but uh there there's a lot of signaling a lot of posturing going on well megan to that point posturing I mean, I'm just wondering, does Speaker Johnson um, really want to lead in a way that would actually help in governing the country? Or are they really content to just really burn it all down? Because there are a lot of people in the Republican conference who were elected and sent to Washington to burn it down. 
Yeah, I think I think there's a couple things happening here. And one is that you really do have this uh, faction of the Republican Party that is the Burn It All Down Caucus. Um, and also, I think more broadly, that Republicans don't have stuff they want to do in the same way that Democrats do. And so, well, I think that there are forces spinning both parties towards a much more intransigent, nihilistic, um, radical kind of politics. The difference is that on the Democratic side, the radicals actually have stuff they want to do. And that means that they need to cooperate with their leadership in order to pass at least some of it, right? They will take half a loaf. In the case of the Republicans, you there, there's not really a long list of stuff that the caucus wants, and that makes it actually extremely difficult to build a coalition, a governing coalition, as we have seen with successive House speakers. And then I think there's another thing, which is a broader trend in politics, which is this obsession with getting on camera. It's this you, the idea that you use Congress as a platform for f performance rather than as a place that you get legislation done. And I think that started, unfortunately, with one of my favorite channels, C-SPAN. We, we put cameras in Congress and suddenly now they're all just looking at the camera all the time, you know, in the same way if some of us, if you're seated in front of a mirror at a restaurant, you just can't stop looking <laughs> and, and, and it's hard to focus on the conversation. And that is, um, I think, what is happening to Congress is they're just spending more and more time trying to get on television and less and less time trying to get deals done. And unfortunately, I love transparency, but you know, sometimes you've got to be able to say things in private and have private conversations. Right. And less and less of that work happens. Committee hearings or just forums for asking questions that will become soundbite clips. Um, and I think that is breaking Congress on both sides. But I think the breakage is much deeper on the Republican side, um, because, as I say, they don't even have an agenda that they would theoretically like to get get enacted. Mm -hmm. David, your first impressions of Speaker Johnson. Uh, he's kind of a. Uh... Uh, a, a cipher. We we didn't know much about him. He didn't have a significant uh, public profile. Uh, he, but the way I'm interpreting him is that uh, he he was the the win that the um, uh, far right uh, achieved after the sort of central centrists, if you can call them that, in the Republican Party defeated Jim Jordan, who did have a big high profile. Uh, he's Jim Jordan um, without the swagger, without the, uh, 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 you know, the Q rating, uh, to put it in, in television terms. Uh, but he's every bit as far right and, and, and maybe farther. Um, and he's got a nice smile, uh, and we'll see if that's uh, real or if that's a kind of a, a, a leopard smile. Because uh, uh, and the and the the test is here on the foreign aid uh, package uh, whether he's uh, after posturing after passing this uh, symbolic bill that they've just passed uh, whether he's going to. Um, Get to the table uh, and do a deal that needs to be done. Um, th this is the real test of, of whether he's going to be an actual Speaker of the House or whether he's going to be a kind of a symbolic, uh, 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 you know, thumb in the eye of uh, of you know the the swamp. 
Mm -hmm. um, I got to squeeze in two, two questions and we've got five minutes. Uh, Megan, the likelihood that the government will, will shut down simply because the, the new speaker won't be, probably won't be able to get a continuing resolution through in time. I think high. Um, I, now, how long that lasts is a real question, right? There are shutdowns and there are shutdowns. There are shutdowns where the national park symbolically closed down, you know, some Yellowstone for a day. And then there are shutdowns when social security checks don't get mailed. I don't think we're going to have the latter kind of shutdown. Hmm. Um, it is Republicans have enough good sense to make sure that when they shut the government down, they don't get it to the point where they're where their main constituents, of whom older voters are one, uh, actually suffer from the shutdown. They're not, they're not that dumb. And so I think before we get to the point where you have serious bills going unpaid and constituents experiencing serious hardship, they will come to a deal. But I think that, that there may be a, a few weeks of government workers going home, of um, sort of ancillary services getting cut. And as I say, sort of high profile things that are annoying, like the national parks, but are not uh, impeding like a core service that someone's depending on for their livelihood or their support. And David, would have switched gears and end the conversation with you because you, you wrote about the passing of Matthew Perry, uh, one of the stars of that iconic sitcom, uh, Friends. He passed away last Saturday. Um, and as we all know, he had a very pro public problem with addiction. And you wrote, quote, I wish for Matthew Perry's sake that he could have been for just a little while unfamous. What did you mean by that? What I meant was that yeah, I, I think his enormous fame maybe separated him uh, from being able to experience just how successful he was and how much joy he brought to so many people. That show, Jonathan, I've had the experience of getting to rediscover it as my children you know, streamed it and watched it for the first time. And it was just so good. One of the, you know, absolutely uh, best ensemble sitcoms in television history. Uh, so funny, so many great performances. The entire cast was strong and Matthew Perry was uh, just wonderful as Chandler Bing. And it, I have to feel that if he had been able just to walk as an anonymous citizen into a room where people were uh, enjoying his work, that he, he would have been a happier person. Um, I encourage everyone to read David's uh, column in the Washington Post about, about Matthew Perry. It's really beautifully done, but I have to disagree with you on one thing you just said, uh, David. The best ensemble uh, sitcom show on television ever was Golden Girls. David Bondrelli, <laughs> Megan McArdle, as always, thank you both very much uh, for coming back to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.